chapter 26, verse 57 to 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under the oath, under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, friends. Uh, like what Rachel has asked us, keep your Bibles open. We will work our way all the way through, verse by verse, like what we do every week. There is an outline as well. Hopefully you'll find that helpful. Um, hopefully you've been finding this series helpful. It, it might sound repetitive, but hopefully each week you're seeing, getting a glimpse of how rich the cross is, how rich the death of Christ is. We're seeing different aspects each week, and hopefully tonight we'll see another aspect. So uh, let's come together in prayer and ask that God might help us again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made known yourself to us, that we might know you truly and fully through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that that might be even clearer as we see who he was and what he did for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder whether you've realized that we're all very judgmental people. Now, we might not like to admit it, but it's true. Let me try to prove it to us tonight. I will tempt this. Now, those of you who always choose to sit in the back few pews of the church, now, I wonder why you do that. I wonder whether it's because you're a bit judgmental, can't sit up the front like those widows, uh, teachers, pets. Uh, we're just too cool to sit up the front. Couldn't sit anywhere in the front ten pews. What about those of you who always sit up the front? What might you be thinking? Might making a judgment as well can't believe those guys out the back. Even the, the one reading the Bible, they, they walk all the way from the back. What are they thinking? No respect for the preacher at all, those people out the back. Or maybe you're just thinking, well, we actually don't like to be up the front too. We, we're just stuck here because we're on the band, so we have to. Now, isn't that making a judgment, a bit judgmental? Or, or maybe we judge people by what we wear. You know, we make a judgment whether we think about it or not. And so if someone wears navy all the time, that person must be conservative, stable, reliable, <laughs> responsible. 
or if you're wearing, you know, multicolored, hurts your eyes type of clothing, then it means that you're one of those who likes attention or perhaps just insecure. But, you know, is that making a judgment? Now, of course, that's not entirely true, but mostly it is anyway. <laughs> or we look at the type of car you drive and we make a judgment. If you drive a Volvo, it means that you seriously value your own life. If you drive a Kia, you don't value your life. If you drive a four-wheel drive, you don't value the life of anyone else on the road. If you drive a manual, then you're skilled, coordinated, cool and awesome. Auto, oh, I don't know what to say about you guys, but anyway. Now that was just a bit of fun. Now hopefully that just showed that we do judge each other and probably we shouldn't. Uh, we're a bit judgmental when we shouldn't be. But a bit more serious now. What happens when you make a misjudgment? What happens when you judge a person entirely wrong? You do it completely wrong. They intended something good, but you interpret it as something evil. They intended to be kind, but you saw it as hatred. They intended to show love, but you saw it as just something rude. I mean, what happens when you make a misjudgment? Now, it goes without saying that I've seen this often enough, but this is the stuff that rips families apart, that breaks down marriages, that ruins friendship, that destroys relationship. And I see it often enough, and it's not good. You see, it's bad when we get people wrong. It is bad when we misjudge people. In fact, being judgmental is not a good thing at all. But then what happens when you make a misjudgment on God himself? I mean, to even think about that, that's absurd. Who would have that audacity to stand in judgment over the God of this universe? But in some twisted way, that's what we see today in our passage. Jesus, the Son of God, he falls into the hands of men who stand in judgment over him. I mean, this is crazy. Men standing in judgment over the God of this universe. And what do they do? They totally misjudge him at every single point. So let's have a look at our passage. You see, what we see here should, in a sense, get our bloods boiling. It should get us furious. How could this ever happen in our history? How could people be so wicked, so rude, so evil? I mean, talk about gross miscarriage of justice. And what do we see in this passage? Well, the one judged by men as guilty is, in fact, innocent. The one judged by men as blaspheming is in fact divine. And the one judged as weak by men is in fact powerful. You see, the one judged as guilty in this passage is in fact innocent. You see, it's no surprise by this point. The high priests, the Jewish leaders, they were all out to get Jesus. They wanted him dead. And there was no other way. They wanted him dead. And you have to sense here how wicked someone has to be to want someone they don't really know dead. But you see, by this point, the pieces were falling into its place for them. Jesus, by this time, he was arrested, he's in chains, he's in their custody, and now he's brought before the Sanhedrin. Now what's the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was like the Jewish parliament. It was the highest authority, made up of 71 men led by the high priest. 
they presided. They were like the political leaders. But more than that, they were the spiritual leaders, the moral leaders. That was their highest court. And so what happened? Have a look. Verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance. You see, Peter, he's the one who said, I'll never leave you, Jesus. That's the guy. He, he, he followed at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now, by this point, it's obvious what they were trying to do. This is the infamous kangaroo court. Whatever they can get, whatever they can use, whatever that will stick, they will use it. Even false witnesses. I mean, just to imagine that, how tragic is that? What type of court is that? This is the highest moral authority in the land, and they would descend so low. Have a look, verse 59 now. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. See, they badly want this guy dead. They don't really know him. They want him dead, and they want to show that he's guilty. Eventually, what happened? Well, they found something that might stick. Verse 60. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, if you're a careful reader of the gospel, Jesus, in fact, didn't say that. He didn't say, I'm able to destroy, but he made a statement in John chapter 2. He said this, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, of course, when Jesus said that, he wasn't referring to the physical temple. He was talking about his own body. But you see, these two witnesses, they twisted his words to show that this guy's a rebel. He's guilty. He's here to destroy the center of our religion, the center of our nation. You see, that was a crime in the ancient world. See, in, in the ancient Roman world, the desecration of any sacred place, it was regarded as a capital offence. And that's how the Romans maintained peace throughout their empire. They allowed the local religions to continue. And so to destroy any temple, any sacred place, that was considered a capital offence against the empire. You see, the Romans, they were very smart. They, their conquest was quite different to the Babylonians. Remember those guys? You see, what they did, the Babylonians, when they went to destroy, they destroyed the local temples, they destroyed the local religions and forced upon them their own religion. Whereas the Romans, they, they were clever to maintain peace across their wide empire. What they did instead was they exchanged religions. You take on ours and we take on yours. And that's how they were able to maintain peace for so long. And so destroying the temple, even though it was Jewish, it was against, it was a capital offence against the empire. And so now, if Jesus claims that he'll destroy the temple, as the witnesses said, the Jews are now thinking at this point, well, we've got a case. We can get this guy. And so the high priest, he thought, well, this is it. Look at verse 62. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Now, of course, whether they had any real evidence or not, they've already judged Jesus as guilty. But you see, the one judged as guilty by men is, in fact, innocent. His silence was not admission. 
They've misjudged him completely. But then worse than being considered guilty is to be caught a blasphemer. That's a greater crime, a greater sin. You see, to blaspheme in the Bible is not only to break the third commandment. It is to offend God. It is to make a claim about God that's not true. Or it's to presume upon the role of God. That's blasphemy. You see, to murder and to steal, that's only offending a neighbour. It does offend God indirectly, but it offends a neighbour. But this blasphemy was to offend the God of the universe. And so here, the one judge as blasphemer, he's in fact God. He's in fact divine. You see, the high priest, though he was malicious, he was not a foolish man. He obviously knew, even though these witnesses were making such a claim, he obviously knew that Jesus could not physically destroy the temple anyway. But he knew the scripture. He saw a connection here with what was claimed. You see, he was aware that from the prophet Zechariah, any future rebuilding of the temple meant also the coming of the Messiah. He saw that connection. You see, in Zechariah chapter 6, this is what we read. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. And so the high priest, he's wicked, but he's not foolish. He's seeing the connection. These were the claims made against Jesus. And so now he's thinking, well, you, Jesus, are you claiming you're able to rebuild the temple of God? Are you also then claiming to be the Messiah? You see, there's a connection there, and that's why he asked that question. He puts Jesus on oath in verse 63. Have a look. I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, the Son of God. And so he's asking Jesus, well, if you claim to be able to rebuild a temple, you're claiming to be the Messiah, the one from David's throne the one who will sit on David's throne. Is that you? Well, Jesus now, he breaks his silence. He responds, false witness after false witness after false witness. And finally now, we get to hear the truth. And who does it come from? Now, there's some irony here. The only true confession that whole night comes from the mouth of this malicious high priest. And so Jesus responds, verse 64, Yes, it is as you say. But now if you were looking carefully, do you notice that the high priest calls Jesus the Son of God, which Jesus himself, he affirms. But notice how Jesus called himself, how Jesus referred to himself. Jesus calls himself not the Son of God, but the Son of Man. Do you notice that? Now why? I mean, isn't being the Son of God better than being the Son of Man? I mean, often this is what we think. We think, Son of God refers to his divinity. And then we think, Son of Man must refer to his humanity. But that's not entirely true. In fact, it's the opposite. You see, in the Old Testament, the Son of God was a title used for human kings, a Davidic king. Son of God meant king on the throne of David. Whereas Son of Man in Daniel 7, in our first reading, refers to a divine figure, the one who comes to the Ancient of Days and is given absolute power and reign over the entire universe. And that's why Jesus was affirming, well, you call me the Son of God, that is true, I am of royal blood. 
I am the long-awaited Davidic king. I am the Messiah. But far more than that, I'm also the son of man. I'm the divine ruler of the universe. He, he ramps it up. And that is why Jesus prefers in the gospel to use the title son of man for himself. He uses this each and every time, over and over again. He's more than a human king. He's the divine ruler. And so have a look, verse 64, Jesus responds. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now what's worth noticing here is that though Jesus just revealed himself, he also gives a threat now. They're standing in judgment over Jesus like they're the rulers, like they're the lords, like they're in control and in power. But Jesus is saying one day, Jesus himself will ascend to the right hand of God, which probably refers to his resurrection and ascension up to God. And it will be Jesus who will be standing in judgment over them. You see why this series is, is titled to cross and crown. For Jesus to head to the cross is to claim his crown as ruler of all. And so what happened this night? Well, that only infuriated the high priest even more. I mean, he says, this amounts to blasphemy, deserving of death. And he finally got Jesus to incriminate himself. And so verse 65, Then the high priest tore his clothes. Now that's what you do when you get mad in the ancient world. You rip your shirt off. We don't do that anymore. And he said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? Not that they had any credible ones anyway. And he would read on. Look, now we have heard blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. You see, in their judgment, they've seen all that Jesus did. They've heard of all that Jesus taught. But in their judgment, they judged him as one who was blaspheming. But the one judged as blaspheming is in fact God, is in fact divine. They've misjudged him completely. And finally, we get to this final point. We see this great irony now. The one judged as weak and powerless and helpless and hopeless and pathetic is in fact powerful. I mean, if you look at this story, you look at this scene, at this trial, who looks to be in control? Who looks to be in power? Well, it looks like it's the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the Jewish leaders. They're the ones holding control. They're the ones calling the shot. They're the ones standing in judgment. They're the ones giving the verdict. And who looks weak and helpless and pathetic here? Well, it looks like Jesus. He's the one in chains. He's the one who stood there silent, without a response, with no defense. He's the one you feel pity for, weak feeble, impotent, pathetic, without even any help from God. And he's mocked and abused. Look at verse 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now just imagine that scene. I mean, this is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one who made them, the one who rules over the universe. And he's being slapped around by them. They're spitting on him, mocking him. How humiliating would that have been? I mean, do you feel a bit of pity for Jesus here? 
But who's in control? Who's really displaying great power here? Well, we know, don't we? You see, Jesus was not showing weakness in being silent. Jesus was not showing weakness in not retaliating, but he was showing tremendous power. You see, if you were accused and falsely accused, slapped around and spit on, what would you do? I mean, if someone tried to do that to me, I mean, that's why I'm doing all the pull-ups, you see, I want to defend myself one day. If someone does that to me, I'll, want to, I'll find it hard to restrain myself. I'll show very little self-control, I'll probably lash out, and that's not good. But this is Jesus. I mean, if Jesus wanted to get free, couldn't he? If Jesus wanted them all dead in an instant, couldn't he? Of course he could. He could have called upon the 12 legions of God, the angels who would come. He had the power of the universe all at his disposal. To even lift a finger for Jesus, they would all be gone in an instant. But here we see the one judged as weak show great power. But of course, more than showing great power, in restraining himself, in giving him over to their abuses. This was all to fulfill prophecy. One after another, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Do you see how they mocked Jesus? They mocked Jesus about prophesying. They said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? But little did they know, all the ancient prophecies concerning this particular event, this particular moment was being fulfilled. So many of them. Here are a few. Isaiah 56. I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Or this, Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Or 53.7. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You see, that prophecy after prophecy was being fulfilled in that moment. And they're mocking Jesus, prophesy to us. Here in Micah, another one. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. It looked like weakness. It looked like we should pity Jesus. But it was absolute power there. And it was fulfillment. He's not only the Son of God, He's not only the Son of Man, but He brings together also the suffering servant of Isaiah. He combines all these Old Testament, three Old Testament figures to one. And He is that one. But there's another prophecy. Do you notice that was being fulfilled at that very moment? What was taking place outside in the courtyard? while Jesus was being slapped around and spit on. Well, Peter, his disciple, would disown his Lord three times, just as Jesus prophesied. It was all happening. It was all coming true. The one judged as weak is powerful. They have completely misjudged him. And so now, as we look at this story, we see how... Horrific, how horrendous, how wicked things could be, and they were. Gross miscarriage of justice, words cannot describe. Accusing him, abusing him, slapping him, spitting him. Now for us, as we read and hear this story today, I suspect it's very easy for all of us 
Just、uh, read this, hear this, and sit back and make a judgment on them, those wicked leaders. I would never be like that. I would never have done that. I'm not that wicked. I'm not that evil. Well, maybe you're not. Maybe you'll be like one of the friends of Jesus, who knew Jesus, who spent years with Jesus, who ate with him, lived with him, heard him talk, heard him teach, saw what he did, and you love him dearly. Maybe you're one of the friends of Jesus. Maybe you're like one of the disciples of Jesus. Well, which one would you be? Take a pick. Would you be Judas, the one who betrayed his Lord for the price of a slave? Would you be one of the other disciples who deserted Jesus at the first、uh, point when he was uh, uh, arrested? Or maybe you might be Peter. And what was he doing? Well, he was there in the courtyard, perhaps watching, perhaps hearing the accusations, the mockery, the slapping, but did nothing anyway. Maybe you'll be one of them. You see, what we're meant to see in this story. It's not just wicked people back then who treated Jesus that way. We're meant to see ourselves in this story. It's not just a high priest standing in judgment over the Son of God. You see, what this story represents is what humanity has done to our Maker. Given its chance, this is what humanity has done. What this represented was what humanity did when God the Son came to be with us. He's judged as guilty. He's a blasphemer. Pitied as a weak, pathetic man, and isn't that what we still see today in our world? I mean, how many people still misjudge Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man? People still call him. He's just a nice moral teacher, or he was a very influential human being, or he was just a, a great miracle worker who died, but nothing more than that. Now, what do you say about that judgment of Jesus? Well, that's a complete misjudgment of Jesus, and if anything, that's blasphemy. You see, if anyone was blaspheming in this story, it wasn't Jesus; it was them. It was the world. It is the world today when we fail to see Jesus for who He is. You see, the world today, us today, we stand just as guilty. Very easy to keep the distance and point the finger. But we stand just as guilty as those who falsely accuse the Son of God, those who slap the face of the Son of God, those who spat on the face of the Son of God. You see, it's not just their sin that Jesus experienced; that it is our sin that sent him there too. And so, we're to see here the horror of what humanity would do to the Son of God given its chance. And so, we should also feel in this not just how bad they are. But how bad we are, our own guilt and our own shame, and that's why one preacher from a few centuries ago, Robert Murray Machane, minister of the Church of Scotland, he once said this: "If the breast of God were within the reach of men, it would be stabbed a million of times in one moment. We would do the very same thing as the high priest." When God was manifest in the flesh, He was altogether lovely. He did no sin. He went about continually doing good, and yet they took Him and hung Him on a tree. They mocked Him and spit upon Him, and this is the way men would do with God again. 
we're just as guilty. Now, I hope you can start to see how deadly serious this is. We shouldn't be judging each other. To be judgmental is a bad thing. But how far more terrible, how much more serious it is to judge Jesus wrongly. To misjudge him, that is fatally serious. When we judge Jesus wrongly, we are condemned eternally. When we judge Jesus wrongly, we are condemned eternally. Get only this wrong. We can try to get so many things right in life, but get only this wrong, and eternity is done for. And so I want us to spend a bit of time just reflecting on that and reflecting on the people we know. We all have family and friends. We all have many of them who would be just like this, who would judge Jesus wrongly and perhaps would even stab him a million times if they got close enough. We know people like that. Those who do not know Jesus are not like that. But does it grieve you? Does it grieve you that there are so many around us who do not know Jesus for who he is? Each time we go door knocking when we do it around Christmas, not many Christians we encounter in our suburb. Yesterday at the Box Hill Outreach, there were uh, lots of chats, a lot of people had a lot of chats. Hundreds of people walked past. Not many of those would have been Christians. But does it grieve you? Does it grieve you? You know, uh, when people get Jesus wrong, what does that mean? It means that they have to pay for their own sins. They have to face the wrath of God themselves. And they've got no one to shield them from God's wrath. And so when we know that, does it grieve you? Sometimes I'm in the city, I'm not often in the city, and I would just sit there and watch. There are thousands of people walking by, QV sitting there, and I think and I reflect, how many of these people do not know Jesus? And it grieves me. Now, I can't help but imagine how frightening it will be one day when so many in this world will face God and find themselves standing in the place they did not expect. They'll find themselves standing in a place where God stands in judgment over them and not the other way around. Does it grieve you that many will face that future? I mean, I've been thinking about this in our family and what we do. Doing stuff amongst us in our church is lots. Keeps us very busy. But we've been convicted. How are we engaging with those around us, our community? Because it grieves us, it should grieve us, that so many do not know Jesus. And so my neighbour is a hairdresser. I knew when we first moved in. Oh, I used to go to a different hairdresser, but recently we thought we need to take advantage of these opportunities. And so now he's my hairdresser, whether it's good or bad, don't worry about that. But he's my hairdresser because I want to find opportunities because it grieves me. He does not know Jesus and he gets Jesus wrong. This past week, we're so busy with church stuff, Bible study, you know, all these things. But this past week, my son's school across the road, they had a working bee, a gardening working bee. And I thought, well, it's during the day, I probably can make some time. I was so busy, I have to take away some time from this sermon. And so, well, I went along and I thought, maybe there's an opportunity here. Because it should grieve me, and it does, that so many do not know the Lord. So I went there this afternoon, and it was strange. I was the only father there. All these mothers loving gardening. I don't like it, but I was helping out. 
but it was an opportunity. I work across the, uh, the road at the church. And so if you walk, walk down Valonia, you can see the garden that we made. It's pretty good. Anyway. But you see, it's so simple, isn't it? Judge Jesus wrongly, and we are condemned eternally. This will cost us our life if we get just this one thing wrong. And so it should always encourage us that people like Pete Sorensen are out at campus proclaiming. Those like Kim out at campus proclaiming. Many of you guys being involved because it should grieve us that so many do not get Jesus right. But of course to get Jesus right, the flip side, that is to see Jesus right, to believe in him as the Son of God, the Son of Man, the suffering servant, then we are saved eternally. Now, isn't that the message of the gospel that's, that's been going from generation to generation for about 2,000 years? Isn't that the message you heard when you first believed? Now, there have been many people throughout our history who have proclaimed the gospel so powerfully, and there are those in your lives who shared the gospel to you. But this past week, we reflect on the life of an extraordinary man, Billy Graham, who lived to 99 years old, he used his life powerfully to proclaim this message. Don't get Jesus wrong. You're a sinner in need of a saviour and he's the only saviour for you. Don't get him wrong. But believe and repent. Trust in him. There's no other way. Because if you get Jesus wrong, there is no hope for you. Believe and repent and you'll be saved. You see, what's the message he gave for decades a tremendous effort he had and a tremendous influence over the world. Now, many of you would know of Billy Graham or heard of him. He's known as America's pastor. And that's because he's been sort of so influential in the shaping of American life. He was a man who spent and expended his life proclaiming this message. Don't get Jesus wrong. Get him right. Now, it's been estimated that he preached to live audiences of over 215 million people in over 185 countries throughout his life. I mean, that's extraordinary. 215 million people. I'll be happy with 50, really, in one country. He's been counseled to every president since World War II. He's visited Australia a few times. Now, some of you, I, I shared about this story this morning. Some of you might remember, but I'll try it here. Any one of you went to the MCG in 1959? Are we all that young? There were quite a few hands this morning. You see, he came to Australia a few times, 59, 69, 79. Uh, I, I wasn't born yet, in fact. I was born in 79, but anyway... I got to hear his son anyway, Franklin Graham, in 2005. It was then Telstra Dome, now it's Etihad Stadium. But you might not know this, but I found this fascinating. Do you know what the record attendance ever at the MCG was? You expect it to be from an AFL final, or you expect it to be maybe a cricket match. But the record attendance at the MCG was for Billy Graham. In 1959, 130,000 people. Many lives won over for Christ because of him. And what was his message? It's a simple one. It's one we saw today. It is this. Jesus is the only saviour there is. Don't misjudge him. Don't get him wrong. He believed that. He was convicted by that. And that's why he was able to say this. This was a picture of him at the MCG preaching. 
But he was able to say this when he was alive. He said, Someday you'll read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than, than, than I am now. I'll just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. I mean, if he wrote that while he, while he was alive, how could he have such confidence, such boldness to say such a thing? What did he know that we, we must also know? Was it because he was so successful? Was it because he drew such a large crowd? Was it because he was such a great preacher that he saved so many lives that he was able to say such a thing? Well, no. It's because of the very simple reason. He knew Jesus. He did not get Jesus wrong. He did not misjudge Jesus like the high priests, like the elders, like the Jewish leaders, like much of the world today. And so why was he so confident and so bold to be able to say such a thing? Well, he told us before he died in, on his 99th birthday, he was asked how he would like to be remembered. And this was what he said. I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds or because I've tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. See Jesus rightly, and he saves us eternally. And so tonight, my appeal to those of you who do not yet know Jesus, you're still thinking he's a moral teacher, my appeal to you is make tonight the night. Don't get Jesus wrong because this is about eternity. This is about your eternity. But for those of us who already know, let's never make this mistake of changing from this point, from this reason. He believed in Jesus, we believe in Jesus, and that's all it takes. Our eternity depends just on that. Let's pray.